0: next sunday lunchtime that's sunday the 30th of april that's a chance for us to have lunch in each other's homes today is the last chance to sign up and you can do that via the link in time out or just come and chat to me and finally if you are a student then your student discipleship groups will be resuming this week on tuesday now it's time uh, for, for us to listen to god speak to us through his word lucy's going to bring us the reading Our reading this evening is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is on page 1154 of your church Bibles. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're starting at verse 1. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's Word.
1: Thanks, Lucy. Let me have my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Minister. It's lovely to have you with us and uh, don't worry if you've been uh, meeting out punishment on the rugby pitch. We're not going to be applying 1 Corinthians 13 to how you treat people on the other side of the pitch. It doesn't have anything to do with that, thankfully. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to hear your hard words because we see in them beautiful truth. Father, humble us and point us towards the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might find at the cross both the perfect standard of love, but also the forgiveness we need for our failure. Amen. Now, the pre-flight safety briefing, which all of us ignore always uh, when we do get to fly. Uh, let me uh, help you by telling you about one part of it. It tells you that if there's going to be a crash, you do this. You adopt the brace position, or as close as you can get to the tiny room that there now are in airline seats. But you're, you adopt the brace position because there's going to be a brutal impact, and that's the best way to be prepared. And having just heard that reading, if we really clocked what was being said, then spiritually we all ought to be doing this because... God's word has got a pretty brutal impact as it tells us what real love is and exposes what my love is like. Or to change the image, uh, the brilliant light of God's beautiful vision for life. It shines like the midday sun in this passage. And because it shines so brightly, it reveals far more clearly the fungal darkness of my self centered self-obsessed shriveled little heart it's like when the lights are switched on a grotty seedy nightclub and you see where you've been all along now the easiest way to see quite how brutal the impact of this passage is before we even get started is just to put your name where it says love it's easy to do that with jesus name jesus is patient jesus is kind oh yes but what about you and me Phil is patient, Phil is kind, Phil does not envy, Phil does not boast, Phil is not proud. It, it gets quite hard to read. It really does. It is worth, though, opening ourselves to the piercing gaze of God's word here in 1 Corinthians 13 because the truth is most of us would like to be known as loving people. We'd like to be known as people who are full of love. We, we know, actually, for, for our relationships with, with one another, if we're going to have healthy relationships, especially close relationships, family relationships, good friends, then we, we've got to be loving people. But actually, there's something more important than just the health of our relationships. Uh, Jonathan Edwards tells us the stakes are much higher if you're a Christian in this room, much, much higher. He says, not only should you be a loving person because it's, it's the only way that human relationships function well, you have to be a loving person if you follow Jesus. Look at this uh, quote from Jonathan Edwards' book on 1 Corinthians 13. If love is the sum of Christianity, surely those things which overthrow love are exceedingly unbecoming Christians. An envious Christian, a malicious Christian, a cold and hard-hearted Christian... It's the greatest absurdity and contradiction. It's as if one should speak of dark brightness or or a false truth. Unloving Christian, he says, is as much of a contradiction as dark light or living dead or sunny bank holiday weekend. It's It's just, what? That just never happens. You can't have those things together. And so as painful as it is to hear what God has to say in 1 Corinthians 13... Well, we need to open ourselves to the piercing brightness of his light so that he can expose our darkness and lead us into his light. Because God, what God wants for us is not to feel miserable as we see how much we fail tonight. What God wants for us is that we turn from the darkness and we walk towards the light and we live more in a love like his. That we become people who are expansive and inclusive and deep and costly and sacrificial and enduring in our love. That we are shaped by the love that God shows at the cross. Now, uh, you'll see that there's a, a sort of strange, it looks like a typo at the, the top of the, um, the, the sheet. The strike through in the title. Well, that's because there is something that you can miss in the translation. As Paul turns, after three verses introducing the theme of love, as he turns now in verse 4 to actually define what love is, he doesn't use adjectives. It's all verbs, actually, in the original language. It just translates a bit funny into English. Uh, But originally, it's verbs because love is an active thing. It's seen in ways of thinking and speaking and doing. I can't say, look, I know I love this person because when I think about them, oh, this this warm, fuzzy feeling just wells up inside me. It's not that easy. To rip off another song title, Love is More Than a Feeling. Now, don't forget verses 1 to 3, as we saw last week. Love is not less than a feeling. God cares about the attitudes of our hearts as much as the actions of our hands. But verses four to seven balance the message of verses one to three by teaching, look, genuine love, a genuine loving affection for somebody in our hearts will be seen in what we do practically. It's seen in the choices we make, in how we think, how we speak, how we behave. Love, if you like, is in an inner affection that leads to outer action. That's what he's really getting at here. Love is an inner affection that leads to outer action. Right. Let's work through uh, verses four to five then. We're just doing those two verses tonight. Now remember, as we get in, Paul is not writing a philosoph- philosophical treatise on love, just you know, randomly with uh, he's just thinking purely academically, theoretically. No, he's writing a letter of practical spiritual guidance to a particular church with particular issues so the things he says about love here they are true for all times and all places but they are particularly relevant the things that he homes in on for the church at Corinth in whatever we are 55 whatever it is AD. So they're true for all times and all places, but they're particularly relevant for this church in Corinth. Now, as we saw last week, we are not Corinth. We are not this church. But Corinth was, in many ways, like London on steroids. And so the lessons for the church at Corinth are really, really important ones for you and me as we live, in in some ways, in a similar context in our city. So, here we go. Firstly, love is patient and love is kind. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Patient, a passive kind and active. And there are two key verbs actually to describe how God treats you and me in the Bible. So for instance, in Romans 2.4, Paul asks, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now to be kind, kindness, it's the positive action of treating people with gentleness and consideration. Now, it's a, it's a, it used to be seen as quite a weak word, and I think now it's, it sounds, oh, isn't that a bit of a woke thing? Although, you know, there's a big emphasis on kindness. Is that, what is it? <coughs> but actually, it's a crucial biblical quality. It wasn't invented by the woke. It was a quality of God. Kindness is to deal gently with people in the light of their weakness. That's what kindness is. It means you show consideration and you give help. Kindness doesn't look to take advantage of weakness, but looks for opportunities to help, to do good, to bless those who need it. Now, patience, on the other hand, or to use the the old translation, long-suffering, well, that's the ability to bear with annoying people, to, to absorb the niggles and the provocations and the frustrations, without lashing out, without just going cold on people, without ending friendships. Now here's how the two relate. Patience means we don't quickly give up on being kind to people. Patience means I don't stop being kind just because you've let me down once, blabbed a secret, did something that really hurt. Now why do you think he starts there for the Corinthians? I was wrestling with this this week, and I wonder if, they are, if it's not a brilliant, brilliant start from Paul. Because I think, in one sense, patience and kindness, they appeal to superior position. And the Corinthians were convinced they were superior people. They are full of spiritual pride, always competing, jostling, trying to outdo one another, showing off with their spiritual gifts. And Paul, Paul I think, here is saying, so you think you're more gifted you think you're spiritually stronger, more popular, more capable. Well, use that power imbalance to show kindness, to bless, to help. Oh, you think others are less godly than you. You think they're slower to learn and grow and, and more annoying. Well, then show patience. After all, that's how God's treated you. So, in one sense, the first two things he picks up for the Corinthian church are things that, that say, okay, you are convinced you're really something. Well, then the first things you should be are kind to those who are in need of your help and patient with those who aren't anything like as advanced as you. It's a powerful start. Love is patient and kind. And put very simply, It is no good me kidding myself, I'm a loving person, unless two of the words that other people would use to describe me are patient and kind. It's worth all of us asking, would that be true of me? We then get to seven different verbs in the next verse and a half, and each of them is a love killer. That's what they are. They're love killers. Seven attitudes and behaviours that if I'm going to be a loving person, I need to kill this attitude off. I'll try to explain just very briefly with each one what does it mean, but also show why it is that unless you kill this thing, you're never going to be a loving person. Firstly, love is not self-seeking. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Now each of those five verbs has its own nuance, but I think the, the uniting theme really is self-centeredness. And one of the biggest barriers to any of us being loving people is to be blunt. I am just so full of love for me that there isn't a huge amount of room and ram left for me thinking about being loving to you. And it's true for me. Most of us really, in different ways. Augustine memorably taught the essence of sin is a curving in on myself. My thoughts, my desires, the things I care about become what matters most. I am at the center of the universe. It is me, me, and a little bit more of me. And you see this in in lots of ways. I think perhaps. The most striking and obvious way you, uh, you see how self-obsessed we are in our culture is how we take photos. So it used to be if I was taking a photo of you lot, well, A, I'd have a, a big camera, probably with a, uh, a shawl over it. and a, um, any, I'm not that old. Um, if I was taking a picture of you lot, I'd do it like this. Click. But of course, that's not how I do it now. Now, it would be, you know, it's I have to be in the picture and bigger than any of you and right at the front because I'm the most important person. I mean, who, who cares? How you take photos, it doesn't matter. This is not a diatribe against selfies. Don't send that email. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of you were like, <laughs> yeah, put it down. We're coming on to quick to anger in a minute. <laughs> the, uh, seriously. But the point is, the point is, what does it illustrate? And I think what it illustrates is that too often, it is all about me. I am the center of the story. And actually the biggest thing and the most important thing is my needs, my plans, what I want. And that should change when God saves us and gives us a new heart by his spirit. We should go from it's all about me to it's more about you. Now, pause for a second. Notice not it's all about you but it's more about you. You don't stop loving yourself and caring for yourself when you turn to follow Jesus. He doesn't turn us into doormats to be used by everybody else. You just stop loving yourself as much, to be honest, too much. What the Bible counters is not a healthy self-love, a healthy self-esteem, but an unhealthy self-obsession, a love that blinds me to the needs of others. Uh, Tim Keller's got a brilliant little phrase in his book, The Freedom of Self Forgetfulness. He says, It's not about thinking less of yourself, it's about thinking of yourself less. You shouldn't move from thinking, I'm brilliant and you should all listen to me, to I'm just rubbish and and nobody should ever want to listen to me. You should just stop thinking about yourself the whole time. Stop endlessly assessing, Am I happy? Uh, uh, Does this work for me? Are my needs being met? Focus less on me and more on serving others. Okay, the, the ways that he specifically applies this. Firstly, it does not envy. So love is seen in how I respond when others flourish while I'm struggling. When others get the things I want, the things I've been praying for for years. Now, it is easy to rejoice and be happy when life is going well. It's possible to cling to your joy when life is really hard. What can seem impossible to us is to cling to my joy and not become bitter when life is really hard for me and they have got the very things I want, whether they happen to be my best friend or someone I really can't stand. But true love doesn't envy the blessings that God gives to others. I think of um, somebody at a previous church I served at who longed to get married and sometimes actually found singleness really, really hard. But I always noticed she was the first person and the most enthusiastic person in congratulating people who got engaged because she refused to give in to envy. And you can't love people who you envy because envy Is resenting other people. It's wishing they didn't have what they have and thinking this is unfair, which is the opposite of love, which is about wanting other people to flourish and be blessed. It's not envy, it does not boast. Which is, I think, the flip side really. What's a loving response when things go well for me, when my life is hashtag blessed? Well, love doesn't boast doesn't and that's a don't ever ever use that online please it is people use it so wrongly but love doesn't boast love doesn't rub other people's faces in it it's right to rejoice when when good things happen and prayers are answered we shouldn't be ashamed of that but boasting is more than just rejoicing boasting trumpets me and my gifts and my achievements and the more i boast about me and how brilliant i am the well, the less significant and the less valuable that others who are struggling are made to feel. And the less I see others because I'm so busy talking about me. It does not boast, it is not proud. Now, a step deeper and darker than boasting is pride. Pride not only boasts in the blessings that God has given me, but assumes I deserve them. Pride sees me with a good job and someone else unemployed, me married, someone else single, me healthy, someone else sick, and assumes, well, I've got these things because, well, ultimately, I'm just more deserving of God's blessing. It is an awful attitude. I cannot love people when I'm proud because Pride is so busy assuming I get what I deserve when things are good that it has no room to think of others. It does not dishonour others. It's not self-seeking. Now, I think those two go together. And the best way to understand what it means to dishonour others in this context is it's about mistreating people through thoughtlessness. You You don't set out to offend people's feelings. But we're so busy chasing after what I want, so consumed with what I need to make my life go the way I want, that we don't even notice the people we're trampling over. We don't even see their needs. I was uh, crossing the road near the park um, a while back, and a boy racer came screaming along, and in a passive-aggressive way, I shook my head as I walked the dog. And he slammed on his brakes, and I won't repeat exactly what he said, but the words were to the effect of, good afternoon, my good man it strikes me that perhaps you have some issues with uh, the manner of my driving my vehicle. or words to that effect. And I said, mate, there are kids running in and out of this park and you're going to run someone over if you drive like that here. And he just said, well, I don't care. I do what I want. (laughs) And shot off. Now, he wasn't driving like that because he wanted to kill a small child. He just didn't care because all that mattered to him was doing what I want. I, I suspect few of us might do that, but, but all of us fall into this trap. Now, perhaps it's the way I don't even notice the person who's been coming to church for a while but kind of always arrives on their own and often sits on their own. I don't mean to exclude or ignore them every week, but I'm just so busy making a beeline for my friends to enjoy catching up with the people who I enjoy, I don't even see them. I dishonor them. They're my brother, sister in Christ, but I dishonor them because I'm seeking after what I want. I cannot love people when I'm proud, boastful, dishonoring or self-seeking because those attitudes take my eyes off others and put them squarely upon me. Thirdly, love doesn't get easily angry or stay angry long. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, given that verse 4 already taught the need for patience, I think the emphasis here is probably less on how quickly I lose it and more on how serious things have to be before I lose it. And we live in an era of addictive outrage. Uh, we're taking offence at the slightest provocation is, is one of the most popular pastimes in this country. They, I, mean, I noticed this week there was a Twitter storm about the Arsenal mascot thing. Did you see that? I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous non-story. Um, they, the mascot was there with their shirt. All the Arsenal players coming off the coach, sign the, sign the shirt and walk on, but um, none of them stopped to chat to the mascot. And there was this huge... And people spent... Hours and hours of their week arguing and venting rage on Twitter about whether this was the worst example of wicked behaviour and they should be lined up against the wall and shot or, or not. You just, what is going on in your life that you think losing your rag and raging online about this is a sensible way to use your time? I mean, it was just ridiculous. But we love the performative outbursts of anger. And say so we've got to be careful in a culture like ours that we are not too quick to get angry ourselves. Now, sometimes anger is right. But too often, I'm too easily provoked and I get provoked by the wrong things for the wrong amount. I get more angry. I realized this week I got more angry about being disrespected by my children than I did when I read that report of children being executed by the soldiers in the Ukraine. That's That's just not right. Jesus, by contrast, when people insulted and mocked him to his face, he forgave them. What made him angry is when they disrespected and dishonored God his Father and when they made it hard for the weak and the vulnerable to have access to grace. But we've got to be careful with our anger. Love cannot have a short fuse, but nor should it have a long memory. It keeps no record of wrongs. I remember um, a number of years ago um, doing marriage counseling in a previous church and husband pulled out his phone as we, as we were talking about what had been going on. He said, I've, I've, got a, I've kept a record of all the things she said. And he had this, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't love someone while at the same time keeping this record, whether it's on your phone or in your memory, that you play over, nurturing the grievances in your heart, chewing over the memory of past wrongs. Now, be careful. It should be obvious, I hope. This is not saying you should endure abuse. If you suffer a crime, you shouldn't go to the police. You should just forget it. And we might be wise not to trust quickly after a betrayal this is saying, look in normal relationships, your friendships at church, that kind of thing, people will let you down and even hurt you sometimes, as you will others. And so you will need, if you want to be a loving person, to fight to let go quickly once things have been dealt with. You see, it is pretty much impossible to love people when you are angry with them. And so if you are always getting angry and if you hold on to your anger for ages and ages and ages, where well, there are going to be large chunks of your life where you're just not loving. And remember how God, who has a perfect memory, don't forget, treats us. We read in Hebrews eight twelve. This is the result of Jesus' death on the cross. God says, "I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more." That's the gospel. That the God with a perfect memory, who showed us such patience, now forgets our sins. Okay, we thought last week as we closed about how Jesus' death on the cross brings us both the forgiveness we need as we hear these brutal words. But also refuels us with the resources to make us more loving people. And we need the forgiveness and transformation of the cross again tonight. And we'll find it as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But as we close the the sermon part, I want to think positively in one sense. Why is it worth the painful work of rooting out the sinful self-obsession which is so deeply knotted and gnarled into the roots of my heart? Why is it worth fighting against my irritability and my selfishness? So I grow in love for others. Well, here you go. It's worth it because it brings heaven to earth. It's worth it because it brings heaven to earth. Think of it this way. It's been a pretty long, miserable winter. Even by British standards, it has been a, a, a bad one. And March was either cold or wet or both most of the time. Uh, it was just it was a waste of a month. Let's be honest. Um, sorry if you, you know, if there was a major life event in March and it was wonderful, great for you. But for the rest of us, it was a waste of a month. But some years, some years in March, you get a nice day, and by then the sun's got a bit of strength to it. And so you step out in, and the air is still cold, but the sun has got some real strength. And so if you, if you step into the shadows or, or a cloud passes over, there's oh, you feel that winter chill is still there. When the sun shines clearly in late March, you sometimes get that glorious feeling of light and warmth. And it's like a slice of summer has been transported back into the winter chill. And it's just wonderful. And love is like that. God is love and heaven is a place of perfect love. And we're not in God's new creation yet. We're still waiting for the Lord Jesus to return from heaven and bring heaven to earth and transform everything. But when we, as a church, love one another, when we fight our selfishness, when we love in the inclusive, deep, rich, radical, patient, self-sacrificial way that Jesus has loved us, when we love like that, it's like the sunshine in March. A bit of heaven is brought into earth. And it's a wonderful thing to experience. It's a powerful thing too. I guess many of us here would know we've got friends who reject Christianity these days. Less because they don't think it's intellectually credible. And more because they think it's harmful. So if you ask them, why aren't you interested in Jesus? It's less, I don't believe the evidence that he rose from the dead. And it's more, look, I just think religion makes people repressed, judgmental, narrow, bigoted. But you see, the more we as a community love people the way Jesus loves us, this supernatural love that reaches beyond natural friendships and narrow cliques, the more we show patience and grace in a way which just doesn't make sense to other people, the more we show a real welcoming love to everybody who comes, the more, in other words, that we love like Jesus. Where well, the more that unbelieving friends and family will be drawn to Jesus for themselves as they see the beauty of heaven shining out in our church for all our imperfections right here and right now. It's why Francis Schaeffer declared love was the ultimate apologetic. Beats all arguments. Jesus himself, of course, taught, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray. Our Father God, uh, these words, they undo us. Of course they do. They are painful to read when we reflect on our own lives and we cringe as we think of some of the things that we've done or failed to do. But we pray too that you would help us to see how beautiful the vision that's described here is. And we pray, Father, that we would uh, come to you for forgiveness and seek your transformation and then seek to live this life of love, that we would be so convinced of the beauty and the richness and the worth of this, that we would each long to and pray for a change in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that our church, for all our imperfections, might be a place where your love shines out and the Lord Jesus is seen. In his name we pray. Amen.